Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 2nd, 2018. Groundhog's Day for those of you listening in parts of the state where the notion of six more weeks of winter actually means anything. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal Weekly Podcast regarding salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today, we're assessing the nature and magnitude of the Ninth Circuit's recent reversal, the settlement in a nationwide class suit against automaker Hyundai. We'll try to determine whether, as the dissenting judge Jacqueline Nguyen worries, the ruling imposes new, heightened barriers to multi-state class action settlements that could render the litigation method prohibitively difficult, or if instead, the split panel's decision is merely a recitation of existing law that already applies to these sorts of suits, and one that might, in any event, be destined for en banc reversal. To weigh the ruling's impact, we'll be joined by Andrew Trask, a senior counsel with McGuire Woods in Los Angeles, who's defended over 100 class actions and maintains a blog on class action suits and strategy, in which his most recent article headline queried, has the Ninth Circuit overhauled nationwide settlement classes? I'll be here in just a few minutes to answer that question, but first, let's get to our opening briefs. The California Supreme Court issued a couple of notable rulings this week, one rendered yesterday, of that Proposition 57, which, among other things, required cases against juvenile offenders to at least begin in juvenile rather than adult criminal court, applies retroactively to cases not yet final when the initiative was enacted. The High Court reasoned that a rule from the recent case Enri Estrada that statutes reducing punishment are generally presumed to apply retroactively to any cases not yet final directed the outcome here, notwithstanding that Prop 57's provision requiring an initial juvenile court hearing doesn't necessarily guarantee any lighter sentences. On Monday, the High Court decided Hernandez v. Restoration Hardware, a closely watched fight over class action appellate procedure as to exactly when and how unnamed class members may bring appeals of Superior Court rulings. Following the long-standing precedent of Eggert v. Pacific States Savings and Loan, which a would-be challenger to the class settlement at issue here argued was a remnant of a bygone era, the court concluded that unnamed class members to have appellate standing must act while the case is still at the trial level, either by filing a motion to intervene or a motion to vacate. One ruling from the state appellate courts issued late last week could find its way up to the state Supreme Court or, as our Sacramento Beat reporter Malcolm McLaughlin says, could potentially spur political wheels in the state capitol over the issue of cash bail, among others. Our Chief Justice and Attorney General have critiqued the current cash bail element of pretrial detention decisions, and in this ruling, First District Court of Appeals presiding Justice Anthony Klein did as well, sketching some different constitutional infirmities that the system might suffer from. Here with more is Malcolm McLaughlin. Malcolm, tell me a bit more about this ruling. So this case uh, was filed by the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and a lot of the uh, you know, action that we have seen in court or around the issue of bail has been coming out of San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, a very interesting ruling, um, and I think uh, if you kind of place it in the larger context of, um, you know, there's there's another high-profile bail case that I've been writing about that's in federal court, and it's it's pretty interesting because both, both cases make constitutional arguments, but they actually make rather different um, constitutional arguments. So the uh, the Buffin case out of San Francisco, and this is the very famous one that's been going on for years at this point. Uh, the local the local uh, city attorney, Dennis Herrera, refused to defend it. The sheriff didn't want to defend it. Kamala Harris didn't defend it. And then, you know, subsequently Becerra, you know, declined to, to, to get involved um, to basically defend the money bail system. And then the bail Aid, California Bail Agents Association won the right to defend the suit. The Buffin suit is by um, 
a uh, group out of uh, Washington, D.C. called Equal Justice Under Law, and they are pushing a constitutional claim against, and I'm, over, I'm probably oversimplifying here, but against the idea of money bail itself as violating the equal protection um, under the 14th Amendment of low-income people. The Humphrey case, the new case out of the first district, this appellate ruling um, was filed, like as I mentioned, was filed by the Public Defender's Office um, but it was actually argued um, by a different group of people who left the um, called Civil Rights Corp. And these these are lawyers who in, I believe it was 2016, left equal justice under law. Um, and the guy would not, uh, Alec Karikasanis, um, is the executive director of that group and actually argued the case uh, in December in the appellate court. Um, and so the, he makes a very different arguments, and I just want to pull out a, a quote here from uh, from my story. None of our arguments has ever been that money bail is un unconstitutional. What we are saying is that if you set money bail that people can't pay, you are ordering that they be detained. So this is an Eighth Amendment uh, challenge. Uh, the Eighth Amendment, which established money bail in the U.S. Constitution, also includes uh, protections against uh, excessive bail. Um, and in this particular case, it was a uh, 63, now 64-year-old uh, defendant, you know, stole some some items uh, from a guy, um, you know, and kind of maybe threatened a, another uh, person at um, a home where he was living, um, like a retirement home. And, uh, but, you know, didn't commit any actual violence. They gave him a $600,000 bail and then lowered it to 350000 um, nobody ever made an argument that he was a danger to be out on the streets, and nobody ever really made an argument that he could afford to pay $350,000. Most people couldn't. You know, he couldn't afford to even pay, you know, the fraction of that that a, you know, uh, that a, a bail bondsman would give you. Um, and so it was essentially, the argument was that the bail was excessive, uh, you know, both for the charge itself and just around the idea of, you know, whether or not this guy was actually dangerous. And then there was also a, um, and also they also made due process claims under the 14th Amendment, but not equal protection claims. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, another thing that was a, a somewhat different in this case is, so this guy actually went up and saw a judge, the judge reduced his bail. The uh, Buffin case has to do with um, pre-arraignment uh, which is actually a distinction I didn't get into my story, but I should have, but, you know, really more about the bail schedule itself. Um, and, you know, is this a significant... Lawyers that I have spoken to on, on all sides, yes, they believe this is a significant uh, ruling. A lot of, you know, some of the folks I talked to kind of didn't want to talk on the record because they have ongoing cases that implicate a lot of this. Um, but I think maybe that there is a sense among the, you know, I think some of the supporters of money bail or the people kind of arguing, you know, that it is constitutional might kind of actually feel behind the scenes. They wouldn't tell you on the record that this is a more plausible and more fruitful um, line of attack for the opponents of money bail to pursue. Not that bail is unconstitutional, because it, it is in the Constitution. It is obviously constitutional, and wealth is not a protected class, but then once you start to implicate these due process rights and excessive bail claims, then you can, you know, make on the very, you know, very similar grounds that the fact somebody can't afford to pay and the bail is 
uh, you know, is not commensurate to their crime and are the risk to public safety, you can actually kind of get to the same place. At the same time, I would say that there is a lot of legislative momentum around bail reform in California. I mean, all of the, you know, the kind of the major players, the attorney general, you know, has, has said it. But, you know, even more so, the chief justice has really been outspoken on this issue. Um, you know, the, you have the attorney general, uh, both the previous one, Kamala Harris, and the current one, um, Javier Becerra have been leaving this kind of um, Easter egg in some of their court arguments, uh, saying that, oh, we're making, you know, we're, we're technically defending money bail, but, you know, we will not defend any use of the bail system that disadvantages low-income people. It's also kind of interesting that um, the side arguing the, you know, the other side of this in the appeals court was the attorney general's office and, um you know, their defense of money bail in this case was haphazard at best. Um, and I know uh, some folks kind of on the, um, you know, in the bail community kind of who, you know, who've been following this basically think that he threw the case. Um, you know, and again, you know, this is a California appeals court. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it is certainly possible that we would see this um, appealed up to the California Supreme Court, but just given some of what I, you know, I mentioned about how defenders of bail might be inclined to think that this was a more fruitful argument and that the implications of this would really be more about adjusting the bail schedule or putting safeguards in place around excessive bail rather than getting rid of money bail. Um, as a whole, uh, they might not be inclined to um, to reopen this can of worms. I mean, I can't speak for them. I can't predict the future. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't see this challenge and it just stood. As as you, as you suggest, if you're on the the losing side here, the Chief Justice have shown pretty little interest in defending the the money bail system as it stands, that you wouldn't maybe be too inclined to appeal this up to the high court. Um, one thing you mentioned is, is Senate Bill 10, a, a bill that had been posed to address the current bail system that was um, on the floor, I think, last year uh, there up in Sacramento where you are. I, I guess what, what happened with that? Um, why didn't it maybe come to fruition? And do you think this is the sort of ruling that could give political momentum to something like, like, like that, that bill? Uh, you know, I mean, I think certainly this ruling uh, doesn't hurt, but I, I really think the political momentum has been building anyway. Um, so there were actually originally two bills. There was AB 42, I believe it was, um, by Assemblyman Rob Bonta, and uh, that one died. Um, the uh, SB 10 did make it out of the Senate. Um, but yeah, it, you know, not in time for, you know, it, it didn't make it, uh, through the whole process last year. The Senate is considered the more liberal body. Um, you know, I mean, sir, and, uh, SB 40, excuse me, AB 42 died in the assembly. Uh, certainly getting through the assembly will be a test for SB 10. Uh, but it does definitely feel like there is a lot of momentum behind it at this point. Yeah, I mean, interesting side side note to this. Uh, I mean, there appears to have been a group of bail agents that were trying to um, implicate Senator Robert Hertzberg, the author of SB 10, and a you know very outspoken opponent of money bail, 
uh, get him implicated in the sexual harassment Me Too scandal around the Capitol after a former um, a Republican, a former Assemblywoman, complained of some um, overly long and aggressive hugs that uh, she received several years ago while she was uh, serving a term in the Assembly. Um, that effort appears to have failed to catch fire. Um, but, I mean, it does kind of, yeah, the, 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 you know, the industry is definitely, uh, you know, feeling the threat of SB10, put it that way. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, there was never a dull, dull moment up there in the California legislature and uh, plenty more interesting episodes to come. I'm sure we'll leave it there for now, though. Uh, Malcolm McLaughlin, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. The Ninth Circuit had another busy week. Among a number of salient rulings, there was one determining that either the Constitution or the Immigration and Nationality Act guarantees court-appointed counsel to minors seeking asylum under the Convention Against Torture. Another ruling held that the Anti-Terrorism Act does not render Twitter criminally liable for providing material support to ISIS in the form of the company's social media platform on which the terrorist organization is able to communicate to our plan attacks. And a decision yesterday gave the FBI a bit more latitude to exempt certain of its work from Freedom of Information Act requests. But the Ninth Circuit decision that's the focus of our show today unwound a major multi-state class action settlement in a suit against Hyundai has cast some doubt over the viability of nationwide class suits and on other recent consumer class action settlements within the circuit, like a nearly $15 billion agreement involving Volkswagen approved by the Northern District in October. Here to discuss the ruling and its impact is Andrew Trask, senior counsel with McGuire Woods and a veteran of over 100 class actions on the defense side. He also maintains the blog Class Action Countermeasures. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, so your most recent article on your blog, Class Action Countermeasures, um, its headline queries, has the Ninth Circuit overhauled nationwide class actions? Um, we'll, we'll squarely address that question in, in a moment, but maybe we could dig in to the opinion and, and flag some of its, its more salient points here. Um, to, to start, the author of the majority opinion here, uh, Judge Akuta, uh, walks through sort of the, the rule at issue here um, in, in this class action. Of course, the, the piece of Rule 23, familiar to, to most folks, the, the four main requirements, numerosity, typicality, commonality, and adequacy are, are pretty standard. But but then Judge Akuta seems to, to really stress a second hurdle that um, classes much must clear. Um, and as she describes it, it seems in her mind to be a, a higher hurdle is that there, there must be a, then a, a, a predominance inquiry. I suppose, could, could you describe that? And, and is it, as she says, kind of a, a more exacting standard than the, the commonality requirement? And I guess it, specifically in the context of this case, a, a multi-state class action, what, uh, what does it entail? Sure thing. It's, um, it is a more demanding standard. In fact, I think the Supreme Court in Comcast versus Behrend Comcast Corp versus Behrend called it a far more demanding standard. It doesn't apply in every class action. There are basically three subsets under Rule 23B. So the four requirements that you described are all under 23A. Every class action has to meet those. Then, depending on the kind of relief you're seeking or the kind of class you're trying to establish, there are three others. Um, 23B1 is fairly rare, but it deals with cases where there's either a limited fund of money that people are going after or an absolute need for uniformity of ruling. Um, and so in that case, people or the courts will say, okay, if you can meet the standard that shows either of those needs, we can certify a class under that section. 
23B2 is a class action that seeks injunctive relief. Um, and the reasoning behind that is if you're going to grant an injunction, you just want to make sure that it's minimally able to apply it in the same way to everyone. Um, and so the standards there are slightly different. 23B3 actually lays out two specific tests that you're supposed to meet, and it's for class actions that seek monetary damages. Um, the first thing that you have to meet is the predominance requirement. And that says that not only do you have to have a common issue that will resolve the majority of the litigation in one direction or the other, but in addition to that, that common issue or the common issues in your litigation need to predominate over any individualized issues that may be raised. Um, and then there's a second requirement that the class action be superior to any other method of resolving the dispute. So in looking at the predominance requirement, um, the Supreme Court has said that you have to look at how the case will ultimately be tried and that it's a far more demanding standard than just the commonality question. Commonality is you identify one issue, hopefully it's at least partially dispositive, and you ask whether or not it can be answered in a common way. For predominance, you look at various things that might come up that might get in the way of that common issue. So in a multi-state or nationwide class action, one of the big issues that might come up is if the choice of law requirements of the specific jurisdiction say that you can't apply one state's law, then you have to look at whether or not the various states' laws that you would apply are going to raise a number of individual questions. Um, and to give you an idea there, for example, consumer fraud class actions, and this was one, uh, the Hyundai case, um, the consumer fraud statutes are widely varying. California has some very, very pro-consumer consumer consumer, or consumer statutes. Um, by contrast, there are some other states that have sort of minimally active consumer statutes. Um, some require a finding of the public good. Some don't. Some require a finding of reliance on a fraudulent statement. Some don't. Some make lists of the various kinds of activities that are prohibited. Some don't. So in, if you're litigating that, you'd wind up with ultimately like 50 different sets of jury instructions, and that's not something courts want to do. So that's how this came into play in this particular case. Yeah, that, that sets up well then the specific qualms the, the panel here had with the, the lower court's treatment of that predominance inquiry. But before we, we get to those qualms, um, real quick, we could just lay out the, the procedure and, and the facts here. The facts are fairly simply stated that the class sued over uh, Hyundai and I believe it's uh, subsidiary Kia's um, representations that their their vehicles had a higher miles per gallon fuel efficiency than, than they in fact did. Um, and so right. multi-state uh, suits are, are brought in California under California's consumer laws, as you say. Uh, what what was the procedure in the, the central district where it was removed to uh, that led up to uh, final approval of the settlement in 2015? There was a fair amount of maneuvering, actually. And it's, it's interesting that you wouldn't see this set of facts very often from a procedural standpoint. So the plaintiff sued. You described the gravamen of the suit very well. Um, and what wound up happening from there is that the plaintiffs moved for certification in the Central District of California. And that was a contested certification at this point. It was not, in fact, a settlement certification. Um, and Hyundai Kia fought back on that. And in the Central District of California, and I'm sure your listeners know this, uh, there's a practice where you release a tentative opinion before you finalize your opinion. And the idea there is to either sort of moot the need for an oral argument or at least direct it to make sure that it's actually useful instead of being two sets of lawyers making their entire case again from the start. And so in this case, the court issued its tentative opinion and it denied certification. It said, I don't see how you could actually litigate this case on a nationwide basis. And one of the reasons it gave was the state law variations that might come into play. Um, 
So the tentative ruling has been issued, but it hasn't been finalized yet. And other plaintiffs' lawyers apparently caught wind of the tentative ruling and thought, okay, we might not be able to get this centralized, this certified in the central district, but we might be able to get a similar class action done somewhere else. So a number of lawyers filed copycat class actions in other jurisdictions and then immediately sent them all to the journal, or not the journal, I'm sorry, the judicial panel for multi-district litigation to have them consolidated in a single area. And while they were doing that, um, the plaintiffs in this case, the central district case, caught wind that that was happening and so immediately turned to Hyundai and Kia and said, okay, let's just settle this now. Um, ultimately, from Hyundai Kia's perspective, they had a lot of leverage at that point. And so I'm guessing that they made a settlement on very favorable terms to themselves. Um, but the need for the central district plaintiffs to settle quickly would have come from the fact that by the time that certification was denied there, they would have lost control of the case to a number of lawyers who would have had it in the multi-district litigation. And so I think what they, they viewed it as probably um, some settlement is better than no settlement from our standpoint. And so probably rushed to get something into place. Um, Once that happened, the next piece that leads to the opinion is that the people who had filed the multi-district litigation or filed the, the underlying litigation that was going to be sent to the MDL rushed into the central district to object to the settlement, claiming that it was inadequate. And one of the arguments they made, and this was kind of surprising to me, but it might be because they had worked out some deal among themselves that they would all sort of take a local cut of their settle of any settlement in the MDL was that they argued that there's no way you could certify a nationwide class based on the variations in state laws. So the central district still went ahead and approved the settlement, um, saying, look, you know, settlements are a compromise. We're not particularly worried about the variations in state laws here. Um, and then the Ninth Circuit reversed that. Um, when it went up on appeal. And the appeal was, you know, you can't approve this because of the variations in state laws. And Judge Acuda really took that to heart and so said, look, yeah, the predominance requirement is an actual requirement for certifying a class, while, you know, the requirements of Rule 23E, which is when you um, approve a class settlement, require a certified class settlement to begin with. So if you can't meet the predominance requirement, then you can't get a settlement certified. And if you can't get a settlement certified, you can't approve it. Yeah, so I suppose what what exactly did Judge Akuta think that the, the the district court should have done that it that it, it didn't do? You're saying they should have really sort of played forward and, and looked to see, okay, if this case doesn't settle, if it goes to trial, do we have a, a proper class to, to certify? And you figure out which laws would have to apply and see if that would uh, must up the predominance uh, requirement. Yeah, she, she actually laid out a three-part test, and as a defendant, I'm very grateful that there is now a three-part test for testing state law variations. Um, under the predominance requirement. It's a, it's fairly common sense. It's what most of the time courts would do in adversarial litigation anyway. And so first you say, can you apply the law of the forum to the class claims constitutionally? Um, the Ninth Circuit actually has some previous precedent that says that California choice of law claims in this particular, or California choice of law procedure in this kind of case uh, means that you cannot simply apply California law to everyone's claims. You would have to apply the laws of the 50 different states. So, if so, what's the outcome of the choice of law analysis? That gets answered by that Ninth Circuit case. It's uh, Matza versus, I cannot remember who's on the other side at the moment, but it was a Ninth Circuit case that dealt with consumer fraud cases or consumer fraud claims. And then if that choice of law analysis requires applying the law of multiple states, would the variations among the states predominate over any other common issues? 
Um, and Mata actually had answered that question for consumer fraud as well. And it said, uh, really, it's very difficult that the consumer law or the consumer fraud laws are all so widely varying that you couldn't bring a nationwide class asserting all of them. You'd have to find some other way to do it. Um, and Judge Akita was really interesting on this. She said, in this particular case, the plaintiffs didn't bother to brief it. Um, and that was my concern, um, or that was her concern. Um, but that in general, while she wouldn't say that you could never certify a consumer fraud case on a nationwide basis, you should also look at Matza. And Matza pretty much says that under the briefing they had seen, it was pretty much impossible. Yeah. Um, so she, that was a very strong hint that it, you'd have to do a phenomenally good job of waving aside variations to get past it. Just um, in terms of needing to, to do that work to figure out how the case would go forward and how the laws would be applied, which state's laws, and whether that would um, make it so that uh, predominance wasn't wasn't met. Uh, in dissent, Judge Wynn says that that burden is one that Rule 23 doesn't actually place on the district court or the class counsel that really it should be up to the objectors to, to come in and say, hey, you know, predominance, the predominance requirement isn't met here because of the you know, this is how the state law or the, this is how the choice of law would, would play out. Um, is that what, what she's saying? Could you unpack her objection on, on this point and where she's getting it from? That, that did appear to be the case. And I think that Judge Nguyen's um, concern there, as she expresses it, comes from an intuition that most lawyers and most judges have, that the moving party usually bears the burden. Um, and so if you raise an issue, you should be the one to meet the burden of persuasion at first glance. It's funny because in this particular case, and it hasn't come up a lot in the settlement context, because unless you have an objector involved, there's not a lot of reason to fight over settlements. Um, but the Supreme Court in Walmart stores versus Dukes, which was decided about seven years ago at this point, had very specifically said that in the context of certification, the plaintiff bears the burden of demonstrating with affirmative evidence that all of the requirements of Rule 23 have been met. And for the most part, that is the way that it's raised, even in, sell in the settlement context. The plaintiff will usually do duly go through a checklist of what all the requirements are and say, these are all met in this case. Um, but they probably wouldn't provide a full state law variations analysis. And the reason that they wouldn't is because they would know that the defendant wouldn't be challenging that particular arm of the analysis. And the defendant wouldn't challenge it because the defendant wants the settlement to go through as well. So if the plaintiffs sort of make an assertion that in individualized issues are not going to predominate and the defense doesn't say anything, uh, then you can argue that the burden's been met in that case. So while I think that Judge Nguyen's intuition actually flies in the face of what the established case law says if you dig into it, it's not a careless mistake at all. It's actually a strong intuition that if you're going to raise an objection like that, you should probably at least show us how that works. And to give you an idea, when this is fought out in an adversarial context, very frequently what will happen is that the plaintiffs will raise the, uh, the plaintiffs will say predominance has been met, and they may not in their initial briefing provide a full briefing of all of the different ways in which um, state law variations can be assigned or addressed. If they do, it's probably going to be fairly perfunctory just because it's fairly costly to sit down and really dig into all that. Mm -hmm. Then the defendant will usually file their brief and say, no, no, lots of individualized state law issues here. And they'll provide uh, an appendix that's usually like at least the length of the brief itself that runs through all of the different state laws and all of the different ways that they could be outcome dispositive in the ways that they vary. 
Um, and then the plaintiffs would either come back and try to rebut those, or that would be the point at which they'd say, no, 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 the, the defendants have it wrong. They said in all these cases, these cases are all an opposite for the following reasons. So it can be a very a fairly large part of briefing in a nationwide class action if it's adversarial. But in the settlement context, most people usually didn't pay attention to it. Um, and it's really interesting that in this case, the objectors came in and said, no, state law variations are a problem. Yeah, yeah. On, on that point where we're parties that are planning to settle anyways might maybe take take a bit of a shortcut when it comes to 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 this particular point of law that that's something that's it's pointed out and stressed by the majority for one thing the majority notes uh, that tentative ruling that you referenced that that the district court um had tentatively said to be a tough class to certify and she says you know if you said that when you're talking about class certification generally it, the bar doesn't get lowered because the parties are agreeing to settle and they want the case to end she even hints that maybe the standard should, should be higher when you're certifying just for the purpose of, of a settlement. What What's her point there? It, it does seem intuitive, and as you describe it, that it, when two parties are ready to settle, the court might be inclined to be a little less particular about uh, whether all the class cert requirements have been exactly met. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's um, As a practical matter, the settlement certification always meets a lower standard than the regular adversarial certification. There's there is no case law that says settlement certification is easier, uh, with one exception. And this all goes back to a case from the 1990s called Amchem, which involved a huge global settlement of all asbestos claims that have ever been brought. Mm. Um, and so the, uh, the plaintiffs and the defendants in those cases had come up with, it was, it was very much a last minute settlement, which is one of the interesting things about it. And it went in front of, I think it was the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, which kind of rubber stamped it. And then it went up to the Third Circuit, which said, hold on, Rule 23 has to mean something here. And in particular, predominance has to mean something. Um, but so do certain other portions of this. And then that went up to the Supreme Court, which basically said, look, the, the goal of settling all asbestos claims ever is an admirable one. But you really do have to follow Rule 23 here. And they said a few things in that. One of which was that in general, settlement certification should be treated at a higher standard um, or a more rigorous standard than regular certification because the parties are not briefing it adversarially. So you don't, the defendant's not bringing out all the best arguments. They're essentially sitting back and saying, yeah, we agree. Um, and that means that you might get some arguments that the defendant might raise otherwise that wouldn't necessarily matter. Um, at the same time, what they said was that you didn't have to pay attention to portions of the certification analysis that would deal with whether or not the, the class would be manageable at trial. Um, and that's actually the second prong of Rule 23b3 is this idea that a class has to be superior. And then superiority is broken down into a couple of, you don't have to meet all of these things necessarily explicitly, but one of the ways in which we talk about superiority is whether or not the class is manageable at trial, because that would tell you whether or not it's superior to individual trials. Um, if a class isn't manageable, it's not superior. But what AMCAM says is you don't have to pay attention to that portion of the inquiry because you're never going to try the case at this point. So a settlement class doesn't have to be a manageable trial class but it does have to meet Rule 23. And arguably, the place where it's most important to have a heightened inquiry is into the adequacy of the named representatives, because at this point, that's not going to be something that's going to be challenged by the defendant, but it is something that people unhappy with the settlement after the fact might come back and challenge. So for the settlement to be sufficiently cohesive, to have a preclusive effect against the people who are not in the courtroom, 
that's the absent class members, you would absolutely have to engage in a heightened adequacy inquiry. And ideally, the court would also engage in heightened inquiries into commonality and typicality as well. Um, and then, of course, predominance. And so one of the interesting things about this case is that the case law all states that in adversarial cases, particularly, but also, I mean, Ancam's a settlement case, that you have to meet the predominance requirement because it is, in fact, a, a requirement of Rule 23b3. Um, and predominance, as we think about it, and even as the Supreme Court has come to say you ought to test it, which is to envision what the trial would look like and then ask how these questions would come up, um, really blends into that manageability question. And so I think most litigators, when they sit down to settle a case, look at the variations in state law and think, that's really about manageability. Um, and so we don't necessarily have to address that. And in their heads, what they're doing is they're thinking, you know, that's really something that affects the trial. And so I know many defendants who would sit there and say, why do we care about the variations of, in state law at the tr at the settlement level? Because we're essentially waiving some of our objections anyways. You know, and if we're not going to worry about whether or not everybody was liable um, you know, or whether or not certain damages calculations are able to be brought out to the, you know, the fifth significant digit. Why would we be worried about the various ways in which some of these claims might skew differently depending on what state they were brought from? We're essentially going to say that we're going to settle them all. But the doctrine says that predominance has to be met and says that state law variations are part of the predominance inquiry. Um, and the only thing that AMCAM allows you not to look at is the manageability question. And manageability doctrinally comes under superiority. So it's this interesting thing where we all think of state law variations in one direction, but the case law actually places them in a different category. Judge Acuda happened to recognize um, the gap there and went with enforcing the law as it's been brought down by the Supreme Court. Real quick, there's a bit of a sidebar to this opinion that references uh -huh. um, attorney's fees. It seems like the majority is a bit skeptical in the way that they were determined here, and I think suggests that the context is, is sort of one in which, I guess, a collusion between the parties might be the sort of thing that could happen, and the Judge Nguyen disagrees on that point. But what what's going on with that piece of the opinion? My recollection from having read the opinion, and it's, it's pretty interesting, is that um, what happened is actually a very standard settlement practice there. Um, ordinarily these days what happens is in order to not look like you're negotiating primarily let me back up for one moment. The policy concern about bad class action settlements, um, and it's a valid one, is that lawyers settle these cases for the fees and not for the relief to the class. Um, and so the concern since the 19, since almost 1966, when the rules, when the modern version of the rules were enacted, has been how do you ensure that people don't bring class actions for the lawyer's fees as opposed to for the benefit of the class? And so there's always been this concern that once you get into settlement, um, essentially what you're going to do is decide what the fee is, settle based around that, because that's really who you're paying to go away. Class action plaintiffs very rarely bring their own cases. They're usually recruited by class counsel. Class counsel comes up with the theory. Class counsel comes up with all the evidence. They go out, they find plaintiffs, they find experts, they develop the stuff. And so there's this real concern that the named plaintiff is essentially a puppet for a lot of this litigation. It becomes a particular concern when you get to settlement because at that point, the only person standing up for the absent class member is the named plaintiff. And if they have no power, then that's going to fall out of the negotiations. So for a long time, there was this concern that you shouldn't have people negotiating the fees first or at the same time as the relief because what you'll ultimately wind up with is a settlement based around the fee. Um, and so 
the practice that began to arise was, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to negotiate the fees. We're going to put that to the side and ultimately we'll, we'll have some kind of an agreement. They're usually called clear sailing agreements where the plaintiffs will apply to the court for a certain amount of fees and the defendant will simply agree not to oppose up to a certain level. Um, and so that way you could kind of put it aside. But the trick is if you know that there's a 30% contingency fee involved, um, or that that's the standard everybody's going to use, then it's very easy to figure out what the fee is as you're negotiating the actual relief. Mm-hmm. And so Judge Acuta kind of pierces through some of the the language there and the lip service and says, look, the fact that you guys didn't even mention fees actually tells me that you were tacitly colluding here, you know, and that this was really a fee-based settlement. And what Judge Gwynn's trying to say is, no, actually, this is the right practice at this point. Um, I actually don't know who I believe is right in that situation because – um, as a number of settlement-based opinions out of the Ninth Circuit have pointed out, ultimately, attorneys on both sides tend to treat all of the relief as a constructive common fund. And that means that you can calculate the fees ahead of time. And you're, you're sort of at a second degree removed still negotiating over fees. Um, and I think the only way to really get around that is going to be some major reform to class actions that limits the amount of fees that one can pull out of them. Um, and I don't think that's politically going to be a starter for any anytime soon. But it's a, it's an interesting debate they're having because they're both saying we know what really goes on here, and Judge Wynn is saying we know that the practice has evolved into this as the as sort of the best face to put on this kind of problem. And what Judge Akuta is saying, look, if you really look at it these days, this is no less collusive than any other way of operating when we're trying to negotiate fees. Okay, uh, jumping back to to the, the articulation uh, on Rule Twenty Three, the majority gives it in dissent. Judge Nguyen says, you know the the majority has essentially created a, a new hurdle that it's kind of heightened the standards of Rule 23. Um, you write, and, and as you've described it, that the majority's approach pretty much restates law, you know, existing law, like from AMCAM. Um, but you say that it mm-hmm. seems it seems like the majority is announcing something new. What uh, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that. Um Lawyers are strategic actors, so you get a ruling and you immediately try to figure out how the, either how you can use that ruling to your benefit or how you can get around it if it's a problem. Um, and so AMCAM came out in 1996, which at this point is 22 years ago. So there's been a lot of time to react to AMCAM since. And the practice of settling large class actions had evolved into this thing that I sort of described the mindset a few minutes ago, which is everybody treats variations in state law as a manageability issue rather than as a predominance problem. So when plaintiffs and defendants are negotiating and trying to figure out whether or not they can get a settlement certification, they don't look very hard at that particular set of obstacles to certifying a class. Essentially, the defendants will take a step back and say, why would we be objecting to their use of some nationwide standard here? And the plaintiffs are just saying, we're not going to brief something that's hugely expensive when we know that the defendants aren't going to object to it. And most objectors, most objectors are actually plaintiff's lawyers themselves who have either been frozen out of a case, have a competing case, um, or in a few rare instances, have decided that there's some other reason why it's worthwhile to object in this particular case, either as a matter of principle or um, it's, a, it's a place where they think that they actually can lodge a really good objection and get some of the fees. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but the vast majority of objectors are plaintiff lawyers. Um, and so most of them wouldn't lodge an objection to use of nationwide you know, use of a nationwide standard instead of actually going through the required analysis because they know that can be turned on them later. 
So for a very long time, I think nobody had thought that there was a problem here from a practical standpoint, even though AMCAM itself does say you have to engage in a full predominance inquiry. And the judge isn't going to sua sponte raise any issues other than perhaps the adequacy of the named plaintiffs. Um, while the judge is considered a fiduciary of the class during this portion, and while AMCAM states that there's a heightened inquiry that you have to engage in, they made it very clear that the heightened inquiry is really into the adequacy of the named plaintiffs and then into whether or not the settlement is fair to absent class members, because that's where you want to focus your attention. So there was this doctrinal gap that sort of developed over the years between doctrine and practice. Practically, nobody briefs um, state law variations during a settlement. Doctrinally, it is required if you follow through the logic relentlessly, you know, and that is the syllogism, or not the syllogism, but the chain is you have to do a full um, inquiry except for manageability, which is part of superiority. A full inquiry would include the predominance requirement. Predominance requires that you make sure that individual state law variations don't overwhelm anything else, um, and therefore it should be briefed. Um, and that last step is the one that most courts didn't take because they didn't see the need to. So Judge Acuta is actually simply enforcing AMCAM as written, but it deviates from the evolving 20 years of practice that came since. That's why I think it seems new, even though it's exactly in line with what was actually out there. Okay, uh, maybe just a, a few more points about the, the kind of the scope and the, and the fallout from this case that you, you articulate in, in your article. One thing that you say that could result is, is a, a backlash from uh, district courts or the district court here. I, uh, I suppose maybe this is an obvious question, but what what do, what do you mean by that? What, what would that entail? Uh, I think it would entail a number of district courts doing what they can to limit the the reach of the opinion. And you can see that, I mean, this is another place where you can just see that both lawyers and judges are strategic actors a lot of the time. Um, if you take it back to uh, Comcast versus Barron for a moment, um, Comcast versus Barron was decided in 2013. The rough, the roughest outlines of it, um, it involved an antitrust class action against a cable company uh, in which there was overcharging claimed. And the plaintiffs had come up with like four different theories of overcharging, but then their expert could only support one of them. And that particular theory got tossed out before the settlement occurred. Um, or before actually, before actually just there was a, a certification because I think it was adversarial still at that point. And the defendants came in and said, look, you've got an expert who's saying one thing. You've got damages on this other end, the way you guys have asserted it, that would be widely varying, but also are not supported by expert evidence anymore. Um, so you can't certify this. And the district court ignored them. The Third Circuit reversed and it went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, you're right. You have to have a damages theory that actually fits, you know, that both doesn't include wildly, wildly varying calculations for damages, but also that that fits what your expert actually says. Um, and when that came out, there had been this debate for a long time over whether or not damages were an individually predominating issue, with most courts saying probably not, but you could consider them. And once this opinion came out, um, Defendants everywhere said, this is fantastic. This is going to be a great asset to us. And so you saw all of these briefs come out that said, look, Supreme Court says damages are a real issue now when it comes to certification, and there's varying damages here, so you shouldn't certify this class. And if you look at the way the Supreme Court wrote the case, it does seem like that's actually the the ultimate holding. But a number of different circuit courts of appeals said, A, this will eliminate a lot of class actions that we think are valid, and B, there's a little bit of play in the language. So the Supreme Court had made some pretty strong statements um, in the Comcast opinion, and every single circuit court of appeals pretty quickly cabined it to antitrust cases, cases that involved a mismatch between the expert and the damages theory, and a few other things. And any wider application of the theory was pretty quickly rejected. I think in the Ninth Circuit, what you'll probably see is that the Ninth Circuit district courts don't want to start rejecting settlements out of hand 
um, even if they're nationwide or multi-state. Because in no small part, you've got the plaintiff and the defendant now standing in front of you saying, we think we can get this case off your docket. So I think the number of district courts are likely to figure out ways to cabin this particular opinion until it doesn't apply as widely as one might think at first. So that's what I that's what I meant by district court backlash. Um, I don't think that there's going to be like a huge like Judge Akita was dumb or anything <laughs> like that. But I do think that people will work very hard to limit the opinion to its actual facts. Okay. Uh, speaking of sort of play in the joints uh, utilized by different circuit courts, as you, you said, this question of the choice of law, different varying state laws, does, according to Amchem, tuck into the, the predominance inquiry, not the, the secondary manageability question. Um, that doesn't have to be dealt with mm-hmm. when classes settle. Um, so you say that outside of the Ninth Circuit, maybe other courts would continue to, to try to utilize that approach, notwithstanding maybe the hard doctrine, the, the letter of the law from AMCHEM is doesn't prescribe exactly that. Do you think that how, how I guess, would circuit courts still try to maybe just skirt around a bit the, the law of AMCHEM and, and keep um, this question in, in the manageability um, piece? I think they could probably do it in two ways. Um, and it's going to be with some help from the lawyers, I think. Um, ultimately, a lot of nationwide classes, or not, a lot of nationwide classes get brought every year, and a lot of multi-state classes. Um, sophisticated class action lawyers have gotten better about bringing multi-state classes that actually have a representative from each state that's involved, um, short of a nationwide class. So, like, if they're bringing 35 states, or, you know, law, on behalf of the laws of 35 states, they'll have 35 plaintiffs, one from each of those states. At that point, I think you can make the argument that you've got representatives from each state. And so you can begin to group um, people into groups of states that don't necessarily conflict with each other, which is something that's already done in the adversarial context. Um, and then at that point, you can either do a little bit of lesser briefing or you can say something along the lines of, you know, we've got the protections here and they're adequate for the predominance inquiry. Um, I think the other thing that one can do, and I don't know how successful this would be because it does fly in the face of what's actually written in AMCHEM, but ultimately the other portion of this would be to walk through the following logic. The predominance requirement of Rule 23 is there to ensure sufficient cohesion that due process has been applied to the class. Um, and therefore, you can meet the due process requirement when you bind absent class members to this ruling. And that is very specifically, and Walmart and Amchem both say this, um, that's very specifically the reason why you have a Rule 23b3 inquiry, um, is to ensure that there is adequate cohesion, that you have met due process when you bind absent class members. I think you could then say, in this particular case, given the, say, the factual predominance, you know, the factual commonality and everything else, and the fact that the plaintiffs and the defendants can agree here, really the only reason to go into the state law variations would be the fact that they might be outcome dispositive at a trial that everybody has agreed to forego. Um, and that makes the real concern here manageability and not predominance. Um, and if that's the case, we don't have to pay attention to this. Um, it's that logically getting from the Supreme Court has previously said this is a predominance inquiry to when you look at it, this is really a manageability inquiry that I think will be the the make or break moment for that kind of briefing. But I think I could see other courts that don't want to immediately have state law variation briefing every time you settle a case mm-hmm. um, making that kind of a ruling. Some may be more rigorous about it than others, as is always the case, and that may percolate around. But that would at least be the doctrinal compromise I could see a court making. Sure. Uh, 
one one other point you made that seemed really interesting is the the choice now as a result of this opinion on the defense side between kind of two different strategies of either fighting class start as hard as you can or just settling early is made more stark because if, if you fight class start too hard then it might make it tough to to settle if you've poked enough holes in, in the cert. Can you spin that point out a bit? Sure thing. It's, um, it, it basically results from the same dilemma that uh, Judge Akita had identified. Almost every lawyer, when we get a case in that's a class action, we immediately, I mean, some of us immediately think just fight. That's, I got to admit, the way that I tend to think. But if my client wishes to settle, I do sort of think about that as well. Um, and everybody usually knows that those are the two primary options. And there are reasons to go with either of those. But I I can safely say from having talked to many defense attorneys over the years and the like that there are sort of two classes of settle of uh, class action attorneys. There are those who fight cases and those who settle cases. Um, and for the ones whose immediate instinct is to settle, they usually try and settle pretty quickly. Um, so you're going to be making that choice very early in the litigation. If you're fighting the litigation and you're fighting it hard and therefore are going to attack predominance, you're going to have to be very careful going forward, at least in the Ninth Circuit, to know that you are not likely to settle later in the case because you may very well have bollocksed your ability to settle the case if you do a really great job, as Hyundai had here, of convincing the district court that the variations in state law are too great to settle. Um, arguably, you could be judicially stopped from saying that at the settlement phase, although I don't think that would come up unless you had already obtained a denial of certification, which is almost what happened here. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be necessarily the, the largest of problems, but I do think that people are going to sit down and really say, do we want to fight this hard or do we want to settle and make that decision a little bit earlier? Because the harder you fight, particularly on the state law variations point, the more difficult you're going to make the certification of any settlement class. The, the, the out that had always been there before was the fact that you could pretty much characterize almost anything that was going to be a problem as a manageability problem. Mm. Um, and so you could characterize it that way. But if you've got Judge Acuta saying, you know, the inquiry into variations in state law is not a, is not a manageability problem. It's actually a predominance problem and must occur. Then you've got an issue. Um, and so I think that's the way that it would work. Okay. So this, this settlement, at least for the time being, is, is scuttled. It is not the only multi-state class action within the Ninth Circuit's confines. Um, that's, that's a prominent one. There's a, obviously the suit against Volkswagen in the Northern District that settled based on sort of similar uh, transgressions on that automaker's part um, and, and, and others as well. Uh, I suppose how likely and do folks know how likely it is that settlements like that one or, or ones uh, along the same lines w- would be unwound based on this ruling? I, I assume, it, as you say, that if the practice was to not dig too deeply into how choice of law or state law variants would play into predominance that other suits could be pretty, other sediments could be pretty vulnerable. It's interesting because this is one where I don't have any inside knowledge about how the Ninth Circuit will handle it or how any individual judge would, but I can make, like almost everybody, I think I can make educated guesses based on, among other things, the size of the Ninth Circuit. I mean, it is the largest appellate circuit, and so there tend to be varying appellate opinions within um, the Ninth Circuit for a while, and that's why on bonk review seems to be used more frequently in this circuit. So I I do know that I've seen some press coverage from the plaintiffs in the Volkswagen case who basically said, Hyundai is not going to affect us. It's not an issue here. I'm not entirely sure doctrinally whether or not that's the case, but I think they're doing two things at once. They're advertising to potential objectors that they're going to fight this hard if it comes in. And on top of that, um, they're just trying to say, look, we're not worried because if you if you advertise worry in a case like that, you're going to see people file competing Volkswagen suits. Um, 
That said, I think that a district court might be able to find principal distinctions between their own case and the Hyundai case that they might be able to use. It might very well be that there had never been, for example, a previous finding, even tentatively by the court, that there was going to be a problem here. And so they could say, no, in this case, we had, we had looked everything over, we made a rigorous analysis, and there's not an issue. Um, and that might or might not clear a Ninth Circuit panel, even with Judge Acuda on it. But there are a lot of Ninth Circuit panels that wouldn't include Judge Acuda. Um, and so it could very well be that you'd get a Ninth Circuit panel that would actually affirm a settlement like that. And then you'd have an intra-circuit split, which occurs in the Ninth Circuit. Um, and then you'd have an en banc panel decide that. So I think it's a it's a calculated gamble to say that Volkswagen will probably go through unscathed. But I think it's the smart bet in that case. And I think it's just a combination of the fact that you've got really talented plaintiff's lawyers who... Um, can credibly make a threat that they're going to fight this very hard and who might even be able to brief it if it came to that and show that there's not the same worry. Um, and then on top of that, the variance in judges just means that you may very well see a different outcome. Um, for anything outside of the Ninth Circuit, like, um, you know, the gun ruling in the Eighth Circuit, Ninth Circuit precedent isn't binding on other circuits. And so I think that the Eighth Circuit might very well say something along the lines of, the Ninth Circuit says that we, in fact, you know, we do a brief inquiry into the predominance of state laws to ensure that there's sufficient cohesion, but we don't worry about specifically how it would play at trial because that's a manageability concern. Exactly the same thing I had articulated before. If I had to guess, I'd say that's the way this will play out. Um, but I think the reason this opinion has caught so many people's imagination is that Nobody expected a ruling like this to begin with. So it's a little hard to say, you know, when you get a black swan ruling like this, exactly how other courts will deal with it. Yeah, I guess that would be sort of my last question is if you um, had to broadly answer the question that you pose in, in your article's headline as to whether this has overhauled uh, nationwide class actions, at least within the Ninth Circuit. Um, do, you, do you think that it has? It seems like opinion is pretty mixed with some folks saying that this is an incredible windfall to defendants in suits like this and others saying that it won't, doesn't actually change too terribly much. I guess uh, just broadly speaking, yeah. how, how big is the the impact here? I'd say that my glib answer is this is one of those times that you pay attention to Betridge's law of headlines, um, which is that when a headline poses a question, the answer is probably no. <laughs> um, and I think the answer is probably no here. I don't think this is necessarily going to lead to a nationwide overhauling. I find it really interesting, and you're not the first person to say it, that there are people who are saying that this is a real windfall for defendants, because for the most part, I don't think it is. I'm not sure it's going to have a huge deterrent effect for bringing nationwide class actions, and to the extent it does, I think it's actually going to lead to just more multiple state-level class actions, which is not something defendants necessarily want. Um, and while I will be the first to say I like the language and I plan on using it in adversarial cases, its application to the settlement process worries me a little bit, too, because I, I've i always thought of this as being more of a manageability issue and therefore not one you had to worry about at settlement. Um, and taking a tool for settlement off the table is not usually a windfall for either side. Um, I do find it interesting, though, that that does seem to be the way that, that everybody characterizes it is, you know, if it, if it makes settlement harder, it must be better for the defendant. Um, I think there are a lot of defendants who would disagree with that. Taking a step back from that, from a very sort of um, 30,000 foot view of class actions in general, I think making sure that the requirements are rigorous always benefits the defendants a little bit more than it benefits the plaintiffs. Uh, but the specific application here, I think, is a real mixed bag, and I ultimately don't know whether defendants would consider it to be a windfall. Uh, because essentially, if you're, if you're fighting adversarially, you were already going to make this argument, and there was already good adversarial case law 
for it. Um, and if you're trying to settle it, it's one more hoop you have to jump through too. Okay. Well, I guess we'll uh, have to wait and see just how, how it plays out here within the Ninth Circuit. Uh, I guess I'll also wait and see whether the, the decision is one that gets reconsidered by, by the full panel. Um, but we can uh, leave it there for now. Uh, Andrew Trask, Senior Counsel with McGuire Woods in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It was really interesting to unpack this case with you. Thanks very much for having me. And with that, our show for February 2nd, 2018 is complete. Thanks for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Brian Cordell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.